Welcome to the first episode of Ether, the podcast for the flagship professional strategic journal of the Department of the Air Force, Ether, a journal of strategic air power and space power. I'm your host, Dr. Laura Thurston Goodrow. Today, we are pleased and honored to be joined by Dr. Chris Kane, U.S. Air Force retired. Chris was the first editor of Strategic Studies Quarterly, or SSQ, the journal that was launched in early 2007 and was renamed this year to Ether, a journal of strategic air power and space power. Dr. Kane was a B-52 radar navigator for 12 years. He attended Air Command and Staff College and Air War College. He earned his PhD in military history from the Ohio State University before becoming the editor of Air and Space Power Journal and SSQ. He served as the Dean of Education at Air Command and Staff College, the Deputy Director of the Air Force Research Institute, and as the Chief Academic Affairs at Air University Headquarters. Welcome to Ether, Chris. Oh, thanks, Laura, and uh, thank you for having me, and uh, uh, congratulations on uh, launching a new journal. Thank you very much. Before we discuss the new issue, I'd like to have you tell listeners about the genesis of SSQ. Yeah, uh, SSQ grew out of uh, senior leader conversations uh, that pointed to a need for airmen to develop and exchange strategic insights, uh, because airspace and cyber power uh, achieve strategic effects in ways that other domains cannot. The concepts and ideas that rely on and capitalize on those effects uh, requires a professional forum. Uh, General Steve Lorenz, who was then the uh, commander of Air University, challenged the SSQ team to create a forum for military government and academic professionals to expand the boundaries of how best to employ air, space, and cyber power to achieve national security goals and objectives. So we were able to, to get the journal running and, uh, and it had a, had a great run. Yes, it really did. And as you know very well, in your time doing this, planning a professional journal is a bit like a dice roll, especially today when journals like ours feel like they must compete with the news of the day, the night, the hour, and the minute. Currency is critical and it's difficult to see outside that cyclone to matters that really matter in the mid and the long term. But as you know, currency is important, at least in getting attention among the scrolling and in today's climate, the doom scrolling. So when we planned this first issue, we knew it was important to feature multiple elements, leading Air Force and Space Force voices, noteworthy Air Force civilian scholars, and finally, to ground the journal in its Department of the Air Force roots, preeminent air power thinkers whose works have become essential reading and professional Air Force military education. The journal is also working to reestablish scholarly relationships with our NATO and EU allies and partners, and our issue includes a contribution by a leading British air power thinker. As you know, you never know who's going to agree to write when you solicit content, but we are pleased with the results. In fact, we achieved unplanned but welcome internal consistency, so much so that we were able to title the scholarly contributions the fine print. Policy has its role, but the rub often is in how policy plays out when implemented. For the benefit of those who have not yet read it, the issue leads with articles by the Chief of Staff of the Air Force, General C.Q. Brown, and the Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force, Joanne Bass. The issue has five articles by current and retired Air Force General Officers, including the Commander of United States Transportation Command, General Jacqueline Van Ovost. The section I mentioned a minute ago, the fine print, features four articles by current Air Force civilian scholars, including Dr. Heather Venable, Dr. Everett Dolman, and Dr. Karen Gatteri, all of Air University, and Dr. Mary Beth Ulrich, currently of the Air Force Academy. 
The third section includes contemporary articles by leading air power scholars, Dr. Robert Pape, Dr. Mark Claudefelter, and John Warden. The issue concludes with the reprint of a contemporary look at air power from Air Vice Marshal Johnny Stringer of the Royal Air Force. Chris, what are your impressions of the strengths of the issue and what challenges do the authors lay out? Well, Laura, uh, let me again congratulate you. This is, uh, if, if you were looking for, you know, a home run uh, at any issue of the journal, uh, the, the first issue was, is a good one to have a home run on. And uh, the slate of authors that you have uh, was just fantastic. The, the topics uh, seemed to, it, you, you couldn't have planned it any better as if uh, you were looking to build an integrated theme or set of themes in the journal. And uh, I think it's just a great product and a great way to, uh, to get the, the new product launched. Um, you're always going to have people that are going to say, well, you know, it wasn't this or it wasn't that. Uh, but uh, I, I can find little to criticize in here. You've got some, some great voices, some great perspectives. Uh, they all point to the strengths of airspace and cyber power. Uh, and they all challenge us to think about how we can uh, use those capabilities uh, in those domains uh, to great strategic effects. So I, I think this is a, a solid home run. Uh, and if you can keep uh, keep up this trend, uh, then uh, you're you're going to have a it's something that people are going to look forward to as they either look to their inbox or uh, as they prepare, hopefully more to write and contribute and become part of the conversation. This is true. We were that's what we're hoping for. Um, yeah, I, I think that um, if you go and and you see that uh, the people that you've got here are leading from the front, then that's only going to encourage uh, like-minded authors uh, to to jump into the fray. It's a tough thing, you know, when you're out there uh, writing and uh, and and putting your ideas out there for public consumption. You're going to find that. Uh, not everyone's going to agree with you, and uh, but uh, the quality of the articles, the quality of the the, uh, the way that you've assembled them is uh, is something that would both uh, suggest to potential contributors. Well, this this is something I want to be part of, and it's also something that uh, they can see that this is a mature, uh, strategic level conversation. Uh, and I can't think of any reason why uh, people would not want to be part of that. It's that's really true. And you're right. Part of the challenge of a journalist to not only provide, you know, relevant content for decision makers and interested people and people who would like to do more research on a subject, but also encourage those new voices or, you know, as you know, in the case of Dr. Pape and Dr. Codfelter and John Warden, um, people to come back after quite a bit of time out of that sort of air power, in that case, air power spotlight. So we were pleased to loop that in. Yeah. And if we, if we uh, needed evidence that this kind of, of exchange was necessary and, uh, and an essential part of our profession, we have to look no far, farther than current events. Uh, right. Things that are going on in Ukraine, the, the, the sort of slow boil, or maybe it's not so slow, uh, things in, uh, in the Indo-Pacific theater, uh, and our continuing 
issues that are going on in the Middle East, even though, you know, we're, our attention is drawn elsewhere, those, those things uh, cannot uh, go ignored. Uh, so, uh, you know, we, we really need creative ideas. Uh, you know, General Brown uh, mentioned a couple of years ago in his uh, Accelerate Change or Lose Challenge, um, he said, you know, we have to uh, think creatively. Uh, I think it was Winston Churchill that said, you know, we're, we're out of money, so we've got to think now. So uh, he said, if we can't solve the problems uh, in more creative and innovative ways, in other words, accelerate change, then we will lose the next conflict. Uh, and uh, that's, that's not a uh, situation that, that anyone wants, but um, he's also empowered people in, in that uh, accelerator change or lose vision. He said, I, I want to empower airmen to go out there and do what it takes to uh, prevent a future loss or uh, even a tie. So uh, we want to maintain the dominance. And uh, I think that that set the stage for a journal like Ether to come along. Uh, and, and so that's the strategic context that we're talking about now. It's not one of those things where our guaranteed dominance across the domains is, uh, is assured. We want to... Uh, Take to do whatever steps are necessary uh, to meet those competitors who have been going to school right. on how we do business over the last 30 years, since August of 1990, uh, when uh, Operation Desert Shield started. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want the, uh, they, they've been studying us. They've been, uh, we've been pretty open. All you have to do is watch the news to see how we operate. And they've paid attention. Now it's our turn uh, to to up the ante uh, to to take airspace and cyber power to levels that no one else can imagine. Right, and on that of of the watching and the learning, it's tragic what's happening in Ukraine. But it's it's really, I think this is going to be a period of a lot of thinking about air power theory and space power theory and what works and what doesn't and what sort of conflicts we fight and how we fight them. It'll be interesting to see what emerges in thought in the next year from this. No, I agree. Uh, you know, the, the, the kinds of, of uh, wars that we've been fighting over the last 30 years and the, the mechanisms that we have used uh, to do so uh, are obviously not being employed uh, in in Ukraine, and that's that is tragic. It, it is regrettable, um, but we we have to realize that uh, sort of mirror imaging ourselves uh, is is one of the things that we have to uh, to get away from. We have to take the conflict that we see as it comes. Uh, I think it was Colonel Warden's article that said, uh, "You know, we will fight the next war." with the concepts that, and the tools that we have when it starts. We, we can't afford to wait for, uh, uh, to come up with some new strategic insight because the pressures of war and, and the, the tools that we have are going to be uh, all we have in the kit at the time. Right, right. Yes, Tim. And, you know, I thought 10 General High Notes 
uh, article really got at that other side of things, you know, the, the outcome that nobody likes to talk about. What if we do lose and those implications? Yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, General Highnote is, uh, is, is a good friend and, and one of those people that, uh, that has thought deeply about airspace and cyber power uh, for many, many years. Uh, and if he is raising a caution to us, uh, if he is explaining how the pathway that we've been on uh, since 1990 could lead to a defeat, then we better sit up and pay attention. Uh, and I think that um, as he traces that fictional uh, historical timeline in his article where he says, okay, we, we thought we were doing everything right. We thought that we were applying uh, the tools that we have uh, to the best effect, uh, only to find out that as we did so, we were, we were sketching out a strategy for an adversary in the future uh, to apply against us. Uh, and, and I think uh, that's one of the things that, uh, that maybe we don't pay enough attention to is uh, to try to get inside the enemy's head, not to, uh, to learn what they are doing uh, or what they're thinking, but to learn how they are perceiving us, uh, how they would apply whatever tools they have and they may not be the, the highest tech tools uh, that's the the challenge in general brown's paper as well yes we have technologies uh, we want to develop the best technologies we want to seize uh, the the march on the future as far as uh, a technological leap when that's possible but uh, the, the real trick is to understand how the enemy is going to be uh, perceiving us and trying to get around our strengths as well as to exploit our weaknesses. And General Highnote uh, puts us a very sobering view, uh, you know, almost a, uh, you know, I hate to say it, but a, a mournful view right. of what that future could be if we do not do, do something about it today. Right. Right, and and you know one of the one of the ways that we are doing that is through you know domain changes and and declarations of domains and Lieutenant General Shaw and his co-authors Gene Ferguson and Amy Salu they really get at that in their article that sort of changed one of the you know one of the big shifts that we're seeing now in the Department of the Air Force and um, Space Force and Space Command. Yeah, I, I was very pleased to see this um, because, as you know, uh, the decision to stand up a new service to break out those capabilities away from the traditional services uh, is controversial and will continue to be so. Uh, and it was great to see a senior leader like General Shaw and uh, Major Ferguson and Captain Solo uh, collaborate to, to propose some ideas about how space uh, is different and why organizing uh, training and equipping for that difference is important to national security. Uh, the first part of it that I just kind of hit me in the face was uh, this definition of area of responsibility and how the, the terrestrial perspective does not apply. Right. Uh, and I, I think, well, if you're going to go back and, and examine and, you know, if the if the juice is going to be worth the squeeze on uh, 
a, a space command, then the first thing you have to think about are those fundamentals. Uh, and uh, just the, the domain itself does not, as they point out, it does not uh, lend itself to uh, using the same kind of language, the same kind of definitions. And I was really glad to see uh, and interested to see their perspective on area of responsibility. And then the, the, uh, the four propositions, uh, the, the first one is, and, and I, um, I saw something very similar to this from Jeff Bezos when he was talking about uh, colonization you know, there's a lot of stuff about going to Mars and maybe that'll happen one day. Uh, but Bezos, as well as, as these authors said that uh, Earth is, is a unique place in uh, the galaxy, in, in uh, the universe. Uh, it's the only place where humans have come uh, to, to grow and flourish. There's a lot of really hostile places out there that, that could not support human existence and this alpha prime is like the earth is the only place currently able to sustain human existence and i think that's a very very important thing yeah to, to ground our space doctrine and our space theory we can't think about going to the moon and establishing a colony in the near term uh, because there's so many just physical uh, barriers to that uh, getting to Mars is even further, uh, you know, in the future, uh, and it will be a, a, a hostile struggle. Uh, so let's think about the, the home planet, and let's think about what it takes to protect it, to preserve it, to, uh, to operate uh, and defend it, uh, because uh, if we don't, as, as our first organizing principle, uh, then some very bad things can happen. So I, I think that's a great proposition. Um, the, um, the second thing that they talked about was that uh, we can no longer think about uh, traditional security concerns. It's not a global problem anymore. It, it goes what they call super global. Uh, in other words, we go from the surface uh, to you know, potentially infinity if you think about, you know, threats from asteroids and comets and things like that. So, you know, when you organize, train and equip from that standpoint, from that perspective, then it is uh, it, it changes how you might do some things. It changes your priorities. And I think that that's critical uh, to to this uh this new organizing principle. Um, third, um, we think about key terrain, whether it's uh, using land power, sea power with uh, the uh, sea lines of communication, or you know, even the concept of air superiority is rooted in controlling the skies over key terrain or denying the, the use of those things. Uh, those, those concepts have little meaning in space or they change significantly. And I think that's uh, something that we as grounded in our air perspective might give a little bit of short shrift to. And I think calling attention to it as a, a defining proposition of the domain is, is very important. Uh, and then finally, um, we can't we can't withdraw from space. Uh, space is essential. 
to our success in the other domains. Uh, so uh, it's not ancillary. It's not uh, an add-on. Uh, with any any capability that you mention in the space domain uh, is something that sets the, our mode of operations in every other domain up for success. Uh, and I think that uh, if we if we start thinking about it in that way, rather than thinking about it as a supporting force, as but as instead as a as an essential force, then I think it would change our perspective. So to me, this is one of those uh, sort of watershed articles. It it, right. it really does establish uh, a uh, a critical rationale for how we are organizing training and equipping for national defense and space is, uh, is a co-equal uh, part of the joint force now. Right, right. And, and one of those, um, I mentioned earlier, the unplanned coincidences or happy coincidences was um, Everett Dolman's article, which goes more into the, you know, the theory and this kind of the doctrine part piece of, of what a space domain is. And it's it's a nice compliment to General Shaw's article. Yeah, and and uh, Dr. Dolman's been writing about this for many, many, many years, uh, and he he's uh, he is he has been a voice of uh, balance and reason in what has often been a very emotional debate about how we uh, organize our, our capabilities for space. So uh, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Uh, the uh, Having a senior leader like General Shaw and his team uh, come out and, and then have Dr. Dolman uh, come back into the conversation uh, just adds a layer of depth, a layer of uh, credibility and, and perspective that uh, this is not, a, while it is a political decision to, uh, to organize the way that we are now organized, it is not merely a political decision. It is a, a strategic decision to set us up for future success. Um, so I, I think that when, um, when you have a solid conceptual foundation like the one that Dr. Dolman has represented, uh, combined with the strategic and operational perspective that you see in, in General Shaw's article. Uh, now you're starting to see the maturation of uh, a capability uh, that will integrate uh, seamlessly with our other uh, domains. So I think that if, if I were, I, I do, I, I mean, I, I use articles from our professional journals when I teach uh, for the Global College of PME. Uh, and so all of these articles are now, I, I send them out to my students to supplement their, uh, their readings and give them a, a bit of a, uh, a summary. Say, okay, take a look at this because this is now how we are thinking about uh, this is not something where we're fighting the last war with the, the tools of the past. This is actually what's going on uh, in the future. You're getting a glimpse into the future. And I think that uh, if you look at these two articles together, you, you get a pretty good outline of, of where 
uh, our, our guardians are going. Right. Right. And, you know, earlier, you know, that, that all involves conversations about resourcing and budgeting. And I, I thought it was kind of neat when Dr. Venables sort of challenged the notion of um, accelerating change being based on technical innovation and that sort of being a sh- maybe sometimes too much of a shiny object. So I thought her, you know, weighing in on let's give that a second thought provided some, like you said, with the previous two articles we were just discussing, you know, there's sort of the, you know, the, the policy piece and then there's the, you know, we're thinking more deeply about it. Yeah, you know, Dr. Venable's got a, a good point, and she does. She provides some good case studies, some good cautionary tales for us. It's like, well, we've tried this using technology as our primary focus in the past, and uh, and let's not step into those those buckets again. Let's let's not trip ourselves up. Uh, I I. Uh, I think that General Brown has has asked us not to focus solely on the technology, certainly because of uh, our acquisition timelines, because of the complexity of bringing weapon systems on board, uh, because of the integration required of maintenance, logistics, and more importantly, human capital. Um, I think that, that General Brown has, uh, has issued a much more nuanced call for accelerating change, innovating and adapting than, uh, than focusing solely on technology. However, um, it, it is uh, our, our adversaries are, are catching up with uh, our investments in technology faster than you could have expected. Part of that is because we have been consuming our technologies uh, over the past 30 years. They've been in, in combat. Uh, it accelerates the, the, uh, uh, the decline of, of a technology. It exposes your capabilities to your adversaries so that they can see what you are doing. They can see how you're employing them. They can see what those capabilities are. And it's a cheap way for them as long as they're not fighting you, it's a cheap way for them uh, to, uh, to, to launch a catch-up program. That's been happening. Uh, now, uh, if we are going to uh, avoid a, uh, a similar capabilities fight, <clears throat> we're going to have to do something in both technology and in concept. And I think Dr. Venable is like, well, let's not focus solely on the technology. Let's focus on the doctrine. Let's focus on the theory. Let's focus on the concepts, the strategies that make the most advantage of those technologies that we in, that we can afford, that we intend to purchase. Uh, to me, uh, and again, I was uh, involved at, across Air University for many, many years. Right. To me, our investments in human capital are uh, as critical as our investments in technologies. And I think they're going to become more so uh, when you think about uh, the, the requirements to develop a, uh, a space professional, a cyber professional uh, with the truly uh, leading world-class capabilities. Uh, we, we have to think very, very deeply about uh, altering our 
our human capital development systems so that we can not only have the greatest technology, but have people that are, that are as competent or more so than uh, the technologies that we put in their hands. So right. I, was, I was very glad to see her, uh, her raise a, uh, a caution flag on this to see that we are now uh, in, a, in a period where it is, uh, it, it, it's not an interwar period anymore. It, it is the period where we are actually getting ready to fight within hopefully a long time. But, you know, maybe the next 10 years, we might be fighting a peer competitor. Uh, and we better start thinking about that integration of technology, human capital, doctrine, and strategy. Yes, you're... You're, you raised the issue of human capital, and, and I, I think that segues nicely into the two, the article by Dr. Gatteri and the article by Dr. Ulrich, both dealing with different aspects of human capital, but how, how we train the next generation of um, airmen and guardians and enlisted and officers to meet those challenges that they're going to face as they fight that war. Yeah, and I would also throw in there um, uh, Chief Master Sergeant of the right. Air Force, Bass, uh, where she was talking about information war. Yes, um, exactly. You know, I, I, uh, I was a Cold Warrior. I was part of the, the, the last <laughs> generation of the Cold War. And uh, things, looking back on it, things seem rather simple. Uh, you had one place to point, you, point the guns and... Uh, <laughs> You know, it was uh, there were there was a, a fairly well defined uh, expectation of how things would unfold, uh, and you were integrated with a strategy of containment and deterrence. So it was uh, it was pretty easy. These days, um, you don't know where the threat's going to come from. It's going to be uh, probably beginning uh, with an information campaign. Uh, Hopefully not at home. Hopefully Thanks. it's it's one of those things as uh, Dr. Ulrich says, uh, you know, we have to become, uh, we have to invest in uh, fundamental concepts that people of my generation took for granted. Right. We have to, we cannot take uh, things for granted that people understand the foundational elements of our democracy and uh and, and we also have to recognize that in the information age, in an information war, which will be maybe the current that runs through all future conflicts, uh, we have to uh, become attuned to attempts to divide and conquer. And, uh, and so uh, investments in, uh, in both how to uh, how to develop that uh, that sense that uh, that ability to to perceive uh, very subtle, very sophisticated attacks, uh, and then preparing our airmen to uh, to recognize and counter them is is going to be something that requires a, a great deal of time, a great deal of our educational enterprise uh, as far as investments. Uh, and uh, to, to really um, see this as a war finding competency 
uh, not just as ancillary training uh, in the future. Uh, so I, I, I think those three articles together, you know, leading off with Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force Bass, right, uh, and then connecting uh, her concerns over information warfare to uh, the, the the concerns of the, you know, pres- preserving our our uh, oath to protect the Constitution, uh, to understand what that means, and then uh, integrating it with warfighting concepts, as uh, Dr. Kateri says, it's just a, uh, it's a nice, uh, a nicely woven theme that, that, is, uh, that is part of this issue that makes it so effective and important. Yes. And, you know, talking, you've mentioned a couple of times, talked about the type of um, warfare we've been preparing or trying to prepare for um, strategic competition about joint task force courts by General Anderson and General Hines, and then retired Lieutenant General Deptula's article on JADC2 and how the, the points that Dr. Klodfelter brings up and, and Dr. Pape as well. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. We have been struggling uh, for 30 years and, and this is not because of any fault in in the Air Force. Uh, when I was, we we tend to to not think about that during Operation Desert Storm in 1991, we did not have a published joint doctrine. Hmm. Uh, we had Goldwater Nichols, Real which truth. said <laughs> we would organize uh, and and things like that. But uh, my uh, Air Command and Staff College class of 94 actually used draft joint publications. We, we were given permission by the joint staff. All of the, uh, the intermediate service schools were given permission by the joint staff to use the draft joint pubs that had not yet been approved by the joint staff. So we fought Desert Storm uh, without a, uh, an officially published and sanctioned joint doctrine. Uh, so since then, we have been struggling, uh, to, uh, find the way to, to command and control, to develop strategy for air power in the context of the joint force. And I believe that, uh, the, uh, the joint task force concept, uh, the, um, uh, that, uh, General Anderson and General Hines talked about is is an indicator that we're we're getting to the point where it's becoming the norm uh, that the, the joint uh, combatant commanders uh, recognize that there is a time when uh, forming a joint task force centered around air with an air commander uh, is the way to go uh, and that uh, you know, that, that is the most effective mechanism in certain circumstances, uh, particularly in the circumstances that, uh, that they wrote about uh, in, uh, in Africa. Right. Uh, General Deptula sees this, and he's been writing about this and speaking about this, gosh, uh, probably for 30 years. Right. Uh, so he sees this as uh, something that while we have had progress, he sees it as something that we have to continue to think about, to develop, 
to exercise and, and to employ because you never really know how things are going to go. You can have great war games, uh, but you never know how they're going to go until you actually uh, pull it out of the kit bag and, and try it out in combat. And so he's, he's very uh, attuned to that, uh, but he's, he also uh, has a caution. He says that, you know, we are the, the, the concept, uh, the JADC2 concept, uh, it is an, a, a vision for something that is going to be incredibly complex. Uh, he has, you know, been uh, on the firing line of trying to implement those kinds of things. So uh, let's let's be careful. Let's be deliberate. Let's be uh, critical as we try to employ that concept to make sure that we get it right and we don't actually erect barriers to how we use our air, space, and cyber power. So I think that uh, anytime you're talking about uh, command and control for one of our most vital and scarce resources, air power, uh, there are going to be folks that, uh, that may not have thought through it as thoroughly and as, as carefully as folks like General Deptula, General Anderson, General Hines, who have actually been in uh, in the wheelhouse and had to do it. And uh, so uh, using, incorporating those lessons from the folks who have done it uh, is essential to, to getting uh, to that J, whatever that acronym was, yeah. J-E-D-C-2. <laughs> Yeah, yes, it's a, one of the long ones, yeah. <laughs> um. But, um, but I, I think that, um, you know, when, when you talk about the, the difference between uh, fighting in a, uh, a peer-to-peer war versus a uh, maybe a, a more asymmetric uh, type of conflict, uh, it, 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 the political environment, the international environment certainly can be restrictive. Uh, but uh, I, I think that at the same time, we've, we're growing beyond that. Uh, it used to be, well, just turn us loose. You know, if we can, if we didn't have all of this oversight, we weren't concerned so much about ROE. Right. Uh, but really, that is the best way to fight. Is, is when you, and this notion that we're going to compare our effectiveness to uh, the, the bombing campaigns over Germany and Japan uh, is, is just wrongheaded. Uh, we are not going to fight a war like we're seeing in Ukraine. We're not going to go and indiscriminately bomb. Uh, number one, it's, it's not ethically and morally correct, uh, and that's not the way we will fight. Number two, it is tactically and strategically ineffective. We are going to uh, apply our, our capabilities to strategic effect. And I think that's where uh, Dr. Pape, Dr. Claude Felter's article uh, meshed nicely with, with Colonel Warden's article. Right. Uh, he, he is laser focused on strategy. What is it that you are trying to do to achieve a strategic effect for the nation? Uh, how do you perceive the, the adversary as a system? 
how do you attack that system to achieve the effect in as rapid a time as possible with as low a cost as possible? Uh, and uh, and now as we as we go forward, that same concept applies in what we used to call major theater war, as well as what we used to call operations other than war. So it, if we if we think about uh, air power in that way, think about applying our capabilities in that way, then the the concerns about whether or not you know civilians will become depressed and and overthrow their their oppressors, you know, and, and ask us to install democracy become less and less of a con, uh, of a problem. We want we want strategic effectiveness using operational art, using our tactical expertise. And that becomes the most effective way to apply airspace and cyber power. Yes. And Air Vice Marshal Stringer's article kind of pulls those strings as well. I felt like that was a good summary and look ahead from our good close friends in the UK. Yeah, it, it's, um, and, and again, you know, he's got the perspective of, of watching this and being a participant over, you know, decades of being a partner to the United States. It's like, you know, we are, we can learn a lot uh, about how to think through these things. Uh, back in the uh, 2009, which is not the early days of SSQ, the second year, we hosted a conference in the UK on deterrence, which at the time we were thinking about uh, renewing deterrence, uh, you know, after the Cold War, we were thinking about trying to deter non-state actors uh, and our partners over in the UK and in the EU uh, in NATO were very excited to get together to talk through these things because they have different perspectives. And I think you see that here with the uh, Air Vice Marshal. It's the same language. It's the same topics. It's the same concepts with a little bit of a different uh, accent. Uh, and I think that uh, keeping those voices connected to ether, keeping those voices in front of our airmen and our guardians is, is very, very important because uh, they, they have a different, they draw slightly different conclusions based upon the way they experience conflict, based upon the way that they solve the, uh, the accelerate, change, or lose problem. And they've been dealing with it much, much longer than we have. Yes. And it also helps us when we are working with our allies and partners in the types of operations that General Van Ovost was talking about in her article. Logistics are global. And I think her, her points are well taken in terms of how that meshes with our allies and partners and within the joint force. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that... Um, over the years, many articles of, about uh, logistics and air mobility are just sort of a, um, uh, a Berlin airlift uh, revision. This is not that. General Van Obost is talking about the integration of our logistical systems with other agencies of government, with the international community, uh, with uh, NGOs, with you know, every aspect uh, of the the scenario that, that you may be involved in, certainly our logistical capabilities, that uh, multimodal capability, 
is is vital. It is a unique tool and has been uh, since since World War II in giving our senior leaders, uh, our national leaders, the opportunity to affect things without having to to resort to destructive measures, without having to resort to coercion. Uh, it is a you know. A, so many years ago, I wrote a wrote a paper about uh, using air power in constructive ways versus destructive ways, and our our logistics and mobility forces have been the primary engines for that. And and General Van Ovost has said, "Look, this is a national resource. This is a national asset, and and we." look at this and, and achieve strategic effects every time that we begin a, a mobility operation. So <clears throat> I believe she's, uh, she is opening the aperture on thinking about how to achieve General Brown's vision. We are not going to be in, a, in permissive environments in a pure conflict. So how do we deploy the force? How do we base the force? How do we sustain the force? And, and how do we deal with both uh, combat operations as well as post-conflict operations uh, if we don't think through uh, and sustain the, our already unique logistic forces? So I, I think this is, this is one where people need to, to pay attention, read between the lines, and, and depart from the history. Think about the future, as General Hino says. Let's think about this and, and work backward from a desired future uh, and, uh, and think about how we apply these concepts uh, of logistics and mobility uh, to achieve strategic effect. Well, um, our time is running short, and I'd like to offer you some final closing thoughts, words of wisdom for us, or final observations on our first issue. Well, I, I, I'm pretty sure that people who know me will say there are no words of wisdom coming from me. Uh, <laughs> but uh, again, I, I would like to say thank you very much for reaching out and giving me the opportunity to, to help with uh with the launch of this product, you've done a fantastic job of making the transition from two very successful products with the uh, Air and Space Power Journal and Strategic Studies Quarter Quarterly to two new journals. And that is a, a phenomenal heavy lift. Uh, I know that you've, uh, you've had many, uh, if not sleepless nights, restless nights over uh, getting those things done. Uh, I would just like to challenge the readers and the listeners, be part of the conversation, get involved, even if it's uh, to comment on an article. The authors, uh, it, it encourages authors, it starts a conversation, and if it could grow into the next generation of the, the authors that, that we see here. Some of these folks, you know, were my peers. Some of these folks uh, were folks who inspired me. Uh, as as I was developing way way back in the in the dark ages, so be the next generation of air, space, and cyber power thinkers and and writers because that's what keeps our profession alive. That's what keeps it active, and that's, that's what keeps it relevant. Uh, and that's how we avoid uh, the uh, the future that General Highnote so uh, starkly sketched out in his article. So thanks again, and you know I I just. Uh, so good luck and 
and keep it going. Well, thank you. It's all about a team, as you know. So I'm thankful for the team here at Air University Press and the team on the two journals, the teams of the two journals. So thank you. And Chris, I'd like to thank you for joining us for our launch of this Ether podcast. We appreciate your insights and recommendations as we move forward with our renamed journal, Ether, a journal of strategic air power and space power.